Ah, good morning, friends. Welcome into Monday. It is Monday. Yep, yep, sure is. Amy Marks, Kors, and Chris Ranji on KMOX until 1 o'clock today. Boy, is it good to have you along for the ride. You get to be with us for the next three hours. In fact, that's the rule. If you're listening right now, you have to listen all the way until 1 o'clock. It's a must. You are required or you can get in some serious trouble. 314-436-7900 to call the show or to text the show to leave a voicemail to the show. 314-944-1120. We're on social media. All the platforms handle is the same. At Chris Amy KMOX. Time now for the top of the order. The top three stories everybody will be talking about. More hostages being released by Hamas and the families have been notified. At least the next round of hostages to be released. The families have been notified who they are by the Prime Minister of Israel. Governor Parson? More like Governor Pardon. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Missouri Governor Mike Parson is granting (laughs) pardons at a pace not seen since the World War II era. You are so. I know. I was holding on to that for like 37 minutes. Oh, my God. And the Cardinals, a new acquisition. They have been busy getting pitching. Uh, looks like another one is on the way. A deal not finalized yet, but Sonny Gray expected to join the Cardinals rotation. So all of that is coming up here. We're going to talk to Matt Pauley about that. Pam Falk, U.N. correspondent for CBS News, will be joining us at the bottom of the hour. Um, we got a lot coming up today. So I can't. I, I don't know. why I was not expecting that at all from you. And now I'm totally thrown off. <laughs> No, which is funny because you would think that you would have been very much expecting that from me. Maybe it's because we haven't seen each other in a few days. <laughs> but I, this was my Chris Christie Donald Duck moment. But this one was good. <laughs> this one worked. They're not going to call you Donald Trump. They're going to call you, oh God, here we go, Donald, Donald Duck. Duck. <laughs> good one, Chris. <laughs> oh, how was your Thanksgiving, Chris? Oh, man. Not bad. Not bad. I haven't seen you since uh, the holiday. I decided to come to work, actually, on Friday. Aw. I was unlike some of y'all. That's right. Yeah, I went to work on Friday and um, it, it had a good day today, a good day then with Brad Young. He was he was. He good. texted me on Thanksgiving. Did he? That was yeah. nice of him. He said, what, anything that I can really hassle Ronge about. <sighs> he would do that. Yeah. So, uh, well, it was a typical Thanksgiving, you know, went down the street to the mm-hmm. uncle's house and... We had a good time, had some good food. My uncle, my aunt and uncle know how to cook. They're really good. Yeah. yeah. A lot so, of family? Yeah. Like, you know, it's medium, I guess. Small to medium. We don't have a huge right. Well, because you don't have like any an ex- siblings. That's right. No siblings and no kids. Yeah. So. <laughs> Very self-satisfied smug, as he said. That. Well, smug not, grin, as he said that. not at all. Yeah. Okay. So you've heard me talk about, like, the families that I grew up, like, homeschooling all their kids, and uh, one of them, I mentioned, Gracie Potterbaum, who just won the NCAA Division I Field Hockey National Championships with the UNC Tar Heels. Uh, incredible athlete. Well, a lot of kids in those families. It's six of them. Their cousins uh, have you know, there's seven in the other family, plus all of their friends. Well, for years, we've had this annual Thanksgiving Day soccer game 
where all the cousins and the aunts and the uncles and the parents and the grandparents and close neighborhood friends all come together and play the soccer game. We did that this time on Friday. And I was I kind of knew what to expect because I've done this for years and there have always been little kids, but I don't know what happened. Because obviously they have grown up slowly over the years. Right. But we showed up and it was a 20 v 20 soccer game. 20 uh, there were almost so 50 40 people. people on the field. At least 40, yeah. That's way too many. And I, I was like, how do you know who was on your team? It was a little hazy, but basically they did played. Did you go uh, shirts and skins? Almost. They did ankles and no ankles. So people like pulled up their pants. What? <laughs> so they had like ankles showing. And yeah. even then it was kind of chilly. So not everybody did it. So you really had to wait until someone started kicking in a certain direction to know if they were on your team or not. But here's the thing. The, the littlest one was eight. And the oldest one was maybe 68. That's how it's always rolled. They take no prisoners. No prisoners. Like if you are a 27-year-old former college athlete, you'll still knock over the 8-year-old or the 68-year-old. They play. You have to really jump in with both feet. But somehow all the kids have grown up to where the kids that were little when we played are now Division I, NCAA Division I athletes. I think there were six NCAA Division I athletes on the field, field hockey, football. One of the boys, two of his sisters are on the women's Olympic ice hockey team. And here was the moment, Ron, where I went from being a pretty fit person who just ran a marathon and feeling good about myself to very old and very sore. It is, I mean, youth is something that I forgot what it looks like. I don't know. I don't even know what that means. All I know is I've always felt good about myself. People go, oh, Amy, you're fit. You run marathons. Yes. But there is a difference between a 40-year-old woman who runs a marathon and a 20-year-old NCAA Division I athlete. So what you're saying is you had an old person moment. Oh, I think it, 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 it finally hit you. I was sore. I finally understood Ben Gay. Like, and how, and bio Do they still make that? I don't know. I think it's called Icy Hot now. Is it called Icy Hot? I don't know. Well, Icy Hot. That's what I understood. You finally had that moment. Yeah. My My lower back was so sore. (laughs) And my kicking leg. I probably kicked the ball three times. And my kicking leg was sore. And to Mason Jar's credit, he dove in with both feet. And he was meeting some of these people for the first time. He was, like, doing slide tackles. And we were both looking at each other going, I'm so sore and exhausted. One of the moms looked at me and said, we're not in the neighborhood anymore. I brought my insurance card. Just in case. (laughs) Yes. It was crazy. What's really funny is um, last week when uh, John Hancock was in and Brad Young was in, we had a brief conversation about the moment you felt like you were old, Mm -hmm. like you finally crossed over over that threshold into being an old person now. And mine was not a physical thing. It was a when the Padres hired Andy Green as their manager and he was younger than me. That was it for me. I was like, oh, my God, I finally crossed over. This is this is it now. And if you're in your 60s or you're in your 70s, you're listening to a couple of people in their 40s saying, oh, come on, screw you. 40s is nothing. Each decade you reach the decade prior doesn't seem so bad. 
Yes. When you're when my mom said, Amy, I know you're you're saying, oh, I hit 40. She said, I thought I was old when I hit 40. Then you hit 50 and you realize 40 is pretty young. Yes, not bad. And you hit 60 and you realize 50 is young. Yeah. It's just all relative. That's right. It's all relative. And this was a funny moment. I do remember, like you said, sometimes sports does it when, A, you realize you're older than everyone on the Cardinals roster. Or B, people your age are being inducted into the Hall of Fame. Oh, my God. There's that. That's a big one. And the thing is. I mean, I felt pretty proud of myself. I was sprinting up and down the field and trying to keep up. And as it turned out, a couple of the girls I was up against, uh, they, uh, Esther, who goes to plays field hockey for Stanford, a couple of them were from England. So they came here to St. Louis over the Thanksgiving break, obviously not going to England uh, for the couple of days. So we were, I was running against them and I felt pretty proud of myself for sprinting against them. But the thing is, I was trying my very hardest <laughs> They looked like they were just kind of cruising. It was cra- it's crazy to see it in action when you re- when you see really good athletes. And I you know, like I said, I'm not a slouch, but it was just next level. What is your old person moment? Let us know. 314-436-7900. You could text us if you'd like to. Uh that moment that you realized, "Oh my god, I'm there now." And Again, it's all relative. As we said, 40 years old is really not old, but it you have these moments where you feel like you finally mm-hmm. you finally made it to that point where you can no longer refer to yourself as a young person. Um, curious to know what yours is. 314-436-7900. When we come back, we have to talk about Governor Pardon. That's next on KMOX. Chris and Amy on KMOX. Amy had a great pun. During the last segment, every now and then you have a it? Huh? Want me to recreate it? No. Here is it. Here it is. Okay. Governor Parson, more like Governor Pardon. So, uh, our Governor Mike Parson, who is on his way out, he is. Um, this is his final term as Governor of the State of Missouri, it, and he has been getting attention over the last several days by multiple outlets, clearly in the state, obviously. But also around the country, you've seen ABC News, you've seen the Associated Press cover the fact that he has pardoned over 600 people in his term, which is a lot. It is a lot. And it's I'll be honest, I don't really pay a whole lot of attention to how many people get pardoned. It's not like it's major news most of the time when it does happen. But he is on an incredible pace that has mm-hmm. not been done since the 1940s. And it it brings to question why. Why so many? Is it it could be a number of different things. And one thing that we do know is that the plurality of the people who have been pardoned are drug offenses. Forty two percent of the people who have been pardoned so far by the governor um, have been in prison or convicted of drug crimes. And it could be various different things, yeah, various levels of severity. Twenty eight percent of them theft. burglary, according to analysis done by the Associated Press. So the question is, why? Is it just just coincidence? Is there something behind it? Or is this just the way things are? Yeah, I don't know. Now, he inherited nearly 3,700 clemency applications because there were a lot of clemency applications backed up because of Governor Eric Greitens' Uh, scandal uh, back in 2018. So things weren't getting done. Some of the cases even dated back to 
Governor Jay Nixon, who served from 2009 to 2017. So they began, Parson and his staff began going through this backlog of clemency applications in December of 2020. More cases keep kept filing in. And again, some of these pardons are like people who served their time. And then one guy who's highlighted in an MSN story, he became a pastor. So he's lived his life years now out of prison, but they can they took that off of his right. off of his record. Um, another a woman wrote a bad check um, and had that on on her for years, and then he's providing clemency for that. I don't know. I, I It kind of came as a surprise when I read the story. I, I hadn't heard him talking a lot about this. Maybe I missed it if he had been talking about it. Maybe he decided one of his last acts as governor would be to work on the backlog because it had been jammed up. Yeah, I can't say there's anything sinister behind it. In fact, I would argue that we probably have too many people in prison around the country that includes the state of Missouri. There are people who are there for drug offenses who don't belong there any longer. And we know on average about 28 years have passed since the last convictions of the people who have been pardoned. That's a long time. And you have to imagine that most of them, if not all of them who have been pardoned, they've done their time. And it's it doesn't really serve greater society to have them, you know, just wasting away in jail for the rest of their lives for offenses that really aren't that serious. From what I understand, um, based on the data that we have right now, it doesn't look like we're talking about violent offenders. So, so some some of them, uh, there's burglary, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily violent, but it is not good. I mean, none of these are, are, are particularly good, but I don't think people should rot in jail for stuff they did 30 years ago that by today's standards may not even be that bad. Well, and... Parson and his staff, as we said, they began systematically going through the backlog and they looked at about 100 cases a month. Here was the criteria for deciding whether or not to grant the pardon. The type of crime, how young offenders were when they committed the crime, how much time had passed since the crime. They looked at the applicant's work and education history their community involvement, their character references, and then their personal contrition for their crimes. And that seems like seems like a pretty reasonable uh, rubric for looking at granting clemency. Yeah, I, I think it's totally reasonable. It's catching headlines. I just don't know how significant it actually is. Um, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe ultimately it's a good thing. Like I said, I do believe there are too many people in prison. And uh, not that you should never be punished for wrongdoing, because you should. If you've done something to harm society, even if it's in a very minor way, you should should pay the price for it. Mm -hmm. But some people pay too great of a price. Some people are in jail way too damn long, which does not benefit the rest of us either. Because we know that if you go to prison, the odds of you ending up back in prison are pretty good. That's and, and I think part of it is not because let's look at it this way. When you go to jail, when you're in prison for a considerable amount of time, mm-hmm. what's the likelihood of you being rehabilitated? You know, what what is the likelihood of you learning skills or uh, 
being released into an environment in which you're able to thrive and flourish. So I, I think that, yes, you should pay the price for the crime mm -hmm. that you've done, but also are we creating people who are going to go back into society and contribute in a meaningful way? Sometimes, yes, but I think it, it makes it a whole lot more difficult for people who have been in prison for a long time and get out and out like, hey, go get a job now, go contribute to society, and good luck. Well, and also, no, a lot of these people have already been out of prison. They've already, some, yeah, yeah right. have, they've already contributed to the community sure. because the one, what Governor Parson did with his office and just transparency of the process and the criteria, I think is really, really good. Margaret Love, the executive director of the nonprofit Collateral Consequences Resource Center. She is also a former pardon attorney at the U.S. Justice Department. She made a, a, a quote in an MSN article interviewed by reporters she said that the way Parson has a predictable schedule, like his monthly announcement saying we do about 100 a month, and the way he has the criteria out there, it helps people have trust in the process and know that it's not something suspicious. You know, a lot of people see this. They think, oh, well, these numbers seem odd. Is it? Is this corrupt? What's going on? And she said, no, if you're going to grant pardons, having a predictable schedule and an open, transparent criteria for all of these pardons, it helps people have trust in the process. And right. again, a lot of these people have a lot of time has passed. They were young. They have contributed to the community already. Yeah. I remember Scott Jagow the other day talked to us about a podcast uh, about a guy who's been in prison in, is it Alabama? I think it's Alabama. And he's been there for 30 years for a crime he absolutely did not commit. For a murder he did not mm -hmm. commit. And people were have he's got a dozen witnesses say he was not there. The old prosecutor doesn't think he should be in prison any longer. It's bad. And they refuse to let him go. When things like that happen, people lose trust in the system. This is a different situation, but maybe it is a good thing that some of these people are getting pardoned. That's Amy. I'm Chris. This is KMOX. Chris and Amy on KMOX. 314-436-7900 to drop us your text messages, 944-1120. If you have a voicemail you would like to share with us. It is time to go to the Quiver River Electric guest line this morning as the ongoing process of Hamas releasing hostages back to Israel is um, happening now. And there's the possibility of the extension of a truce by a couple of days. To discuss all of this with us, U.N. correspondent for CBS News, Pam Falk, joins the show. Pam, it's good to talk to you. How are you? Very well, Chris. Nice speaking with you. Yeah, this is a, a moment when dozens of Israeli hostages and more than 100 Palestinian prisoners returned home. And that included a very heart-wrenching reunion of the first American to be released uh, by Hamas and Gaza, the four-year-old Abigail. I'm sure you saw some of the footage of her walking free um, uh, after, after, I mean, uh, to her parents, uh, her father's arms. And, uh, I mean, her both of her parents were killed, to her family's arms, I should say. And the pause in fighting is set to end 7 a.m. Tuesday, which is really midnight our time Eastern, uh, but both Israel and Hamas are looking to extend it so that more people can go home. 
Yeah, and it's a unique form of psychological torture that we're seeing here from Hamas, which is what you would expect from them. There's a 10-month-old that they still refuse to release. The four-year-old girl, as you mentioned, she saw her father or her mother get gunned down, hid behind her father, right. who shielded her with his own body. He is murdered brutally and taking, taken hostage. Um, the held in tunnels, we've heard they were given little bits of rice over those 48 days that they were held hostage. I don't know how hostages come back from that situation or return to their families and deal with the immense amount of trauma that they must have. And so many of them, three years old, five years old, six years old. Absolutely, Amy. And uh, in terms of um, Abigail, I mean, it's six of the nine children released, their parents died um, in the brutal October 7th attack. And so, of course, I mean, the idea of not uh, of watching their, I mean, of Abigail in particular, watching her parents die, having her father shield her uh, so that she survived and then taken hostage. I mean, the whole thing is just heart-wrenching, and you wonder if someone does come back. Obviously, they'll be surrounded by family, and they will have um, all sorts of medical treatment, but it's it's tough. I mean, this is just brutal, and international pressure is is rising on both sides to extend this so that other families can be released. There was a back and forth on the weekend when um, a child was released without a mother, and that was part. The part of the deal was to release families together, not separate families in their release, and that was ultimately resolved. But Qatar has played a very important role. This is the deal between Qatar, Egypt, and the United States, in addition to um, Hamas and, of course, Israel, negotiating each and every one of these exchanges. Talking with Pam Falk here from CBS News, um, who covers the United Nations. And uh, we are hearing now that Qatar is is saying that an agreement has been reached to extend the truce for another couple of days. So it does look like that is going to happen. Is there a possibility of it being extended beyond those two days? Yes. Um, And you're right on, 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 uh, on the mark. Uh, Chris, this just happened while we were on air that they confirmed that this extension will take place. What they agreed to extend in the original deal was one extra day for every 10 additional hostages um, taken by Hamas of Israel um, every day. Uh, so one one extra day for 10 additional hostages, but there are around 240. So um that that will that will take a lot of negotiating to continue that as israel says look they want to now go to the south where they they feel like they have about 10 more days to make sure that there are no hamas command centers in the north but that's going to be very difficult because they've moved most of the palestinians to the south and now Uh, I mean, if you want to think about what it's like, it's about the size Gaza Strip. The Gaza Strip is about the size of Manhattan. Um, And uh, the population is very dense. 
And so to try to find what they have found in the north, which were Hamas command centers and everything else, will be tough. And that is after all of these hostages are released. Now, many, many analysts of the region feel like they, uh, you know, they've said that they think they're going that Hamas will hold on to some hostages to try to avoid any further military action. But uh, it's a very complicated deal. At 3 p.m. today, Eastern Time, the U.N. Security Council is taking this up again. But the U.N.'s main role at this point is really to just try to get some of the aid in, which is also part of the deal. And um, they've gotten about 200 trucks a day. But uh, the usual for Gaza without a war is about 400 trucks a day, where they pretty much um, Hamas has destroyed a lot of the infrastructure, including water and now um, electricity. And so all of this is uh, is, is an intensely um, uh, difficult deal to negotiate. Pam, what are the discussions like, maybe not even on the floor, but in the hallways at the U.N. right now? Because the U.N. rather famously, and, and I would personally say ludicrously, uh, has historically condemned Israel. Um, yeah, it's so disproportionately you have Libya and Saudi Arabia and Iran condemning Israel's treatment of women, which makes no sense as women have incredible right. rights, and you have the first democrat- democratically elected female prime minister. So you have that ludicrous side of the way the UN views right. Israel. What is what is the discussion happening right now? Well, you're right on the money. I mean, the Security Council has been somewhat paralyzed. They did uh, finally agree to a resolution last week that did um, look forward to this kind of a truce and um, and uh, say and talked about Hamas um, taking hostages, but did not. They could not get a resolution approved that even condemned Hamas for taking all these hostages. And, and of course, the brutality, um, the rape and pillage that occurred on October 7th, um, to say the least. And so um, what you have is a U.N. Security Council that is set in 1945. Russia has, has nixed most of what uh, the U.S. Um, and Israel, not a member of the council, but uh, supported by the U.S. has tried to do, and of, in, of course, in the in the General Assembly, it's 193 countries, so there are a lot more Arab countries. And um, as you say, and you were right on the mark, uh, the General Assembly has been traditionally very anti-Israel, so it's very contentious here, no question. But um, Israel has managed to actually sh- have several meetings with hostage families. And Israel has shown the videos um, that Hamas took from with GoPros of the murders and torture of civilians on October 7th. So there's there's there certainly is a general sense here that that this has that what Hamas did makes it ungovernable. Uh, I mean, can't govern in the future. And that you've heard which is highly unusual from the secretary general. So um, it takes a while, and there's a lot of feeling that U.N. doesn't have a role in this, but that's changing somewhat. Pamela Falk covers the United Nations for CBS News and is joining us here. What has been the reaction um, over the last several weeks 
of uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the way he has gone about the military action. We know that there are people around the world who feel like he has um, overextended himself a bit. I know Israelis are not particularly happy with him to begin with. What is the feeling worldwide on him? Well, um, right now, no one's talking about uh, about whether he's a good prime minister or not, because uh, so much is going on to try to get the hostages out. But of course, as you say, before this crisis, um, Israel was up in arms about his attempt to reform the judiciary, and he was having big problems in terms of popularity. There are reports that are that have come out about the fact that there may have been warnings that were missed about the October 7th attack. I think that's something that will come home to roost after this is all over and and life moves on. Uh, But right now he's being pretty well supported because he made this deal, because he's working to get the hostages out, and because people are so traumatized in Israel about what happened. Uh, Pam, we have seen that over the last uh, day or two, a pretty severe storm uh, that happened in, you know, Ukraine, Russia, in that area of the world has caused quite a bit of devastation. How has that affected the military action that's happening there right now? Yeah, that's, um, you know, you just heard from uh, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, in the past few minutes. That uh, about Russia stealing Ukrainian grain, sabotaging farmlands. They've been much more uh, severe in their bombardment of agricultural infrastructure and port cities. Uh, but um, the Ukrainians are, are more equipped than they were. They are um, responding, but winter has set in, and there is a um, there's huge snowfall in some parts of the country and flooding in other parts that has has been in, um, incredibly uh has had an incredible impact and so um there's everyone's trying to deal with that as well as the fact that the international community is still trying to get back they don't call them hostages but the abducted 20,000 children from Ukraine that have been taken to Russia so all of that is something that uh, Ukraine is trying to deal with as they're off the top agenda item. They're off the front burner in in the global news eyes because of the Middle East, but um, they're suffering enormously. Pamela Falk, we love talking to you. Thank you again for the information today. We appreciate it. And a belated happy Thanksgiving. Hope you didn't eat too much to both of you. Oh, well. Thank still, you. I'm still doing it right now, actually. Still kind of full. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Pamela. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Pamela Falk, UN correspondent for CBS News, visiting with us on the Quiver River Electric Guest Line. When we come back, did you see this? That's coming up on KMOX. Did you see that thing? I can't believe it. Something is obviously wrong. This is a joke, right? Oh, my God. Are you freaking kidding me? No way. You got to be kidding me. Don't feel bad. There's no way you could have known that. Now, did you see this with Chris and Amy on the show? Ward. Hey, Raj. Yeah. How many pull-ups could you do? Uh, I don't know. Probably zero. I can do zero. I know this because I've tried, and I'll, I'll like, hang from the bar. 
I can't even bend my elbows. <laughs> I can't even get to the point where my elbows bend. Okay. It's okay. So uh, a Brandon Garrett, he is a personal trainer at Club Fitness in Fairview Heights. So a local guy. Yeah. Some people have said an Illinois guy. Some people have said a St. Louis guy. I'm not sure which one he prefers. Well, if he's at Fairview Heights, he's an Illinois guy. Well, that's where he works. I don't know where he was born. At any rate, uh, guess what happened? He decided he was going to break the world record in pull-ups. Really? Yes. He is going for a 10,000 pull-ups in 24 hours. What's that? 10,000 pull-ups in 24 hours. Yikes. The previous record is from Gary Lloyd, who hit 8,624 hours, and he is the latest record holder. I have an update to this story. You go to your Did You See This, and I'll give you an update. Why? Do you have the update now? Well. Give me the update now. I'm going to wait. I thought it was this Friday. (laughs) I think it was Friday. (laughs) Let me double check. Wait, wait. I need to double check. That's, um, I, I need to know what happened here. Because I'm, I'm look, the, the way I see it, if you can do, like, five pull-ups, just five, I think that's impressive. Okay, he did it. How 9, many? 9,229 pull-ups. That is 629 more than the previous record. You're kidding me. Why would you want to do 9,000 pull-ups? I, I don't know how you would do that. So you don't do, you, he, you, he can drop off the bar, right? Like you can rest, go to the bathroom. You have 24 hours to do all of the pull-ups. And it said he just grew up playing several sports. He was a serious runner. At one point he ran 10 miles every morning and he Jeez. broke the world record. We have a local record holder. He started at 4 p.m. at Club Fitness, and he went straight for 24 hours. He said, I kept looking outside, looking for the sun to rise. That midnight to 6 a.m., I felt like a perpetual darkness. That's I, I, I just can't imagine you'd want to do it. Some of these world records, just generally speaking, I can't imagine people would want to even try to do that. I can't. He's... The pain that you would feel, he was he said his forearms were the first things to go. Quote, it literally felt like rubber bands snapping through my forearms. But I don't know how once you feel that point of failure, how you keep going. The recovery to be able to get back up on the bar and to keep going. Amy, you're a frequenter to AshleyMadison.com, aren't you? No? Oh, no. Isn't okay. that also for men? Yeah, I think it is. Um... <laughs> So did you see that Gen Z is apparently not really interested in monogamous relationships? What? 59% of Gen Zers want an open or a polyamorous relationship. This according to uh, a study done by Ashley Madison. Okay. Well, that seems like a, a motivated reasoning there in their polling by the Ashley Madison crew. I'm also... Because guess, guess who doesn't frequent Ashley Madison. Those in monogamous relationships. Mm. I'm also shocked to find out that I'm in Gen Z. That's Amy Marks Cores. I'm Chris Ramsey. It's a joke. You're listening to KMOX.